it's a lens that you're developing, a lens through which you can view the world, not exclusively as a white male born in Connecticut, but just as a member of history and a participant in a global society. And I've always tried to get that lens right and to balance my own views. Your positive, positive, positive imprint, 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 imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Well, hello. Thank you so much for listening to all of these amazing and exceptional positive imprints. Well, I'm Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Exceptional people rise to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn so much more about his background. Download his music and also some of his written compositions for piano. For the podcast, Chris composed Elevated Intentions, a perfect title, which I use at the end of the show. And Chris's music may be found at chrisknoll.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My website is yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for email updates and learn more about the podcast. The website, of course, has information as well as the people behind the show. You can also go shopping for Your Positive Imprint merchandise on my website. You can listen to the show from my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, or of course listen from any podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or simply your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. And don't forget to share episodes, download, subscribe, or follow this podcast, and leave positive reviews. Enjoy the show and get inspired to activate your own positive imprint. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? Mike Silvestrini's life changed. He joined up with the Peace Corps and spent time in Africa as a small enterprise development officer. During his time in Africa, he observed the extreme need to protect precious ecosystems and wildlife, hence the Big Life Foundation. Mike Silvestrini, welcome to the show. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Oh, it's going great. I'm so excited to have you and to learn more about these investments and just your past, your history to where you are today. The Big Foundation, anxious to hear. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Big Life Foundation, just to set the record straight, you know, I joined several years into an existing organization who was based in Kenya. And there was this fantastic group of individuals had gotten together and decided to take action against the poaching of wildlife that was happening in that area. It's basically Southern Kenya, Northern Tanzania. And uh, they were doing such a great job that we, when we discovered them, had to be part of it and joined the board going on about five or six years ago now. You went out there when you joined the Peace Corps, not really realizing how much that experience would change you. I think it started off, Catherine, as um, just a love affair with traveling. 
and experiencing different cultures and hanging out with other travelers and seeing different places. At a young age, basically my teenage years, I started to travel with my friends, going on road trips, just domestically. I tried to figure out ways that what types of lifestyles would allow me to professionalize my life as I grow and you know, want to eventually have a job and a family, but still be able to maintain uh, a love and my passion for travel and understanding the world. And that kind of forced me to think about international diplomacy. Maybe we need to take a step back and look, what are the current events in the world saying to us? And we had the Nobel Prize going to the scientific community who proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that climate change was a significant concern for humanity. For me, it was quite clear that renewable energy in wildlife conservation were going to be two industries that I wanted to be part of, two things that must thrive mm -hmm. uh, for us to have a long-term sustainable world and, and relationship with the world. So that became obvious to me because of those traveling and that synthesis of global perspectives. Let's look at the Peace Corps. When you went down into Africa, what were some of your experiences that obviously changed you, but you went down there already with the notion of changing the world because you joined the Peace Corps. Well, Peace Corps is really a fascinating and incredible experience that I can't recommend high enough for anybody. I joined the Peace Corps in 2005 and was stationed in Mali, a country in West Africa. And uh, the Republic du Mali, it's a French speaking country. Their main language is Bambara, but it was a French colony. So there's traces of French and Bambara in their dialects. And uh, it's an ancient culture. And it was really fascinating because I'd never really knew much about Mali before I was on a plane on my way there. It was exciting to like, go to some place just totally foreign to me. A lot of people assumed it would be dangerous. It is an extremely poor country, but it is also one of the happiest places I've ever been, which was bizarre. What a juxtaposition of characteristics of a place simultaneously being the second or third poorest country in the world any given year, but also producing some of the best music and just having a, a laughter based culture. They even have this concept that we call in English joking cousins, where when you greet another person on the street in Mali, you might grab their hand and make a series of jokes that are almost standard jokes. And they have sort of a series of canned responses and they call it a greeting and you might make fun of their last name and, you know, call him the descendant of a long line of bean eaters, which is, you know, again, Shoduna, which is kind of a, just a Malian cultural thing. And, you know, you might stand there for five or 10 minutes, just greeting that person to make some jokes, have a laugh at each other's expense, and then go on with your day. And we couldn't imagine that. Like if the bus is, 10 seconds late in the United States, horns start honking and people have a panic attack. But in this cu culture, you could take an entire five minutes and just blow it on reiterating the importance of that interpersonal relationship. So like they have that in spades, they have really strong communities and societies in Mali that I think was uh, probably overlooked by whoever views it as just a scary poor place. Oh, isn't that interesting? They're is so much to learn in the world. And I think reading is certainly an awesome way. And most people can't 
make the type of traveling trips that you have fortunately been able to make. So Big Life Foundation, you talked about the poachers and you talked about trying to save the wildlife. So what is it that Big Life Foundation is doing to help preserve the wildlife in its natural habitat? Uh, Is there a way that you're able to sustain the habitats? We don't know yet. We've certainly had tremendous progress. The, The hard part about conservation is you have to be successful for eternity for it to matter at all. Because if we're successful for 50 years and then regress and lose that ecosystem 50 years from now, then all the 50 years between now and then were kind of a waste of time and money because it only really matters if it works forever. And I can't say that we've solved for that, but I can say that we solved some short-term problems. Number one, there's a very important place in Southern Kenya called the Amboseli ecosystem. Amboseli is the name for a series of natural underground springs. And it's always wet there. There's about a foot of water with some tall grasses growing out of it throughout what is essentially like a big swamp. And it's a national park. And uh, it's a very important place because when it's dry season, all the surrounding areas, which includes Kilimanjaro, it includes Savo National Park, Savo East and West. It includes places like the Chulu Hills, very important ecologies. All the wildlife will, during the dry season, migrate its way to the Amboseli Springs to have a drink. And once it has a drink, then hopefully it rains. And as it rains and grasses start growing and sprouting all throughout the ecosystem, the wildlife disperses. So it's this constant ebb and flow of migrations towards the water, then the rains come, and dispersal. And what the problem is, is that this wildlife is crossing in and out of about four or five different national park boundaries on their journey to Amboseli to have a drink. They're passing through hundreds of kilometers of farms. They're passing mining operations and schools and interacting with several hundred thousand humans. That's where you create human wildlife conflict. And uh, so when we first got really engaged in big life, there was about 400 poached elephants a year in the greater Amboseli ecosystem. And it went unchecked because most of it was Al-Shabaab and a lot of Somalian kind of gang groups kind of coming down and taking the ivory, selling the ivory to the Chinese on the black market and, and in funding their combat. But there was also a sort of indifference amongst the local communities to allow this to happen. So first we had to stop that. I'm happy to say that, you know, it's zero now. There are no poached elephants in the Amboseli ecosystem. And that's largely because of the more than 200 wildlife rangers that Big Life Foundation employs who are all Maasai, mostly Maasai warriors who have been repositioned as wildlife rangers to protect this ecosystem. And there is no poaching in our ecosystem, in our area of operation, which is about 2 million acres. So... Uh, I can say that that's a huge success and that came through more or less firepower, training rangers, training, you know, warrior aged Maasai boys, mostly and girls to become rangers, training them how to engage with this wildlife and to shoo away an elephant who's wandered too close to the avocado patch and things like that. So uh, a lot of training, we have a couple planes, we have tracker dogs. 
we made a lot of arrests, over a thousand arrests of potential poachers who were there setting up snares in the in specific intent to kill wildlife illegally. And then to follow those poachers through the judicial system to see if they serve. Mm -hmm. And that was really uh, our major effort for the first few years that started before I got there and continued through the first few years of my being involved with Big Life Foundation. And it grew a lot. You know, we went from sort of a one to a $7 million annual spend as an organization over the course of the last five years. So that's been exciting. But now we're encountering new problems. We have full capacities of lions, cheetahs, leopards, elephants. They all live in maximum carrying capacity in our area of operation. But here comes a new problem. The only reason why those animals really exist there in modern day in the first place is because the Maasai have territory divided among group ranches. So Maasai don't have private property like you and I, we might both own our own house or our own land. In the Maasai, you might have 30,000 people who share a massive piece of uh, tribal land. And that's great for wildlife because it's really hard to develop that type of tribal land into farms and mining operations, the two biggest culprits, the human uh, encroachment onto those open spaces. It saved this wildlife. The Maasai, the bizarreness of the Maasai land culture has saved this wildlife. It's the only reason why it's not already a farm because most of Kenya already is. So long story short, they're starting to subdivide the Maasai land and giving out those parcels as private property to the individual members of the community. And that's petrifying us because we know and are, are already seeing the Maasai start to quickly sell that property for a quick buck, which is a bad investment for them because once they sell their land, they really have nothing. And they wind up you know, moving to Nairobi and having a hard time acclimating to the modern job culture. So we see that a lot, but also ecologically speaking, that land is gonna be now developed. So we have spent uh, the last few years really trying to help the Maasai navigate a process of privatizing the group ranches and individualizing the group ranches in such a way that they can still have the ecological value of their homeland. Because our argument to them is that being one of the last places in the world where rhinos and elephants and cheetahs can freely roam in, a, in their natural habitat is, is priceless real estate. And you want to hold on to that and you want to protect that and charge tourists for that and eventually mint biodiversity credits or carbon credits or whatever the heck else we can invent for you guys and sell that stuff to primarily American massive companies like the Apples and the Microsofts of the world who do a fantastic job of leading the charge of, of creating a, a marketplace for trading environmental commodities. And that's our argument to them. And, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic interpersonal and intercultural relationship between big life, our multi hundred force and the surrounding communities who are all stakeholders in this same global effort to preserve our last remaining megafauna. Wow. This is really, wow. I mean, it's, it's heart, wrenching because we 
certainly want to preserve the wildlife, but we also know that people need to live and survive. And so they make decisions which may or may not be good decisions for tomorrow. I had a gal on the show from Africa, and she is a beekeeper. And of course, on my podcast, I have exceptional people on the show. She goes above and beyond beekeeping where she found that, number one, the trees, the habitat for bees were being cut down, you know, because of the charcoal industry. And the other is that villagers would poach elephants because the elephants were coming in and tramping all over their gardens. And that's their livelihood as well. So what she did is she talked to the villagers and said, let's put beehives all around the perimeter of the village to keep the elephants out. And in order for you to not take down the trees, I want you to build beehives in your village and I in turn will buy the honey to provide income to you so that she gives something back to save elephants and to save trees and so on. So she did that and it's very successful. And granted, it's a small area, it's not a million acres, but still it's something that somebody is doing and it's a positive imprint and it's working. And so the people are happy, they're making money, they're keeping the elephants out, they have honey, they have bees, they're no longer afraid of them. That's fascinating. Unfortunately, we've had to, you know, we're not as creative as this, as that guest. We've had to install hundreds of kilometers of electrified fencing because it's the only way, and it stinks, you know, to take one of the most beautiful terrains left in the world and to build a fence. But we had corridors that were just shrinking to zero. And one of our corridors is only a couple kilometers uh, wide now. And the farms just keep on encroaching, 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 mm-hmm. and it would have swallowed up that corridor. So we didn't really build the fence to keep the elephants out. We, we did it to keep the humans right, right. kind of overrunning this critical artery of that migratory process I was telling you about earlier. So we deal a lot now in, in many ways, a big chunk of what enter, of what big life foundation does today is fence building and maintenance so that we can keep a separation between the farmers who have every right to grow food that goes in this lunchbox of their kids mm-hmm. on their school. Uh, they have to have that right, but we can do our best to keep the elephants out of there. And then it actually allows our limited security source forces to stretch much farther because when those those fences there the the number of instances of human wildlife conflict go down a lot and we can police much broader spaces so unfortunately uh, it looks from our perspective that the future of uh, wildlife security and and ecology on a a broad scale is going to have to require some level of fencing but i like the beehives a heck of a lot better than i like electrified fencing so that's a really cool concept it's not a million acres but a village reaping the benefits of the beehives because she buys the honey I, i tell you i would like to speak with her her name is mumbatu she might have other you know alternatives but right now that's what she's been doing and it's been working for a number of years 
Learn more about Big Life Foundation by going to their website, biglife.org. And the episode that I am referring to with Mumbatu is episode 121, Saving Africa's Honeybees, Sustainable Beekeeper, Mumbatu, Portia Morudi. Take a listen to that episode to learn more about her positive imprints with the honeybees, villagers, and elephants in Africa. Next week, Mike Silvestrini shares information on climate change and his company, Energia. And please hit that download, subscribe, or follow button now. Your positive imprint. What's your P.I.?